0: This podcast is sponsored by WeAudition.com. Do stay tuned to find out how you can get 25% off of your pro membership.
1: So we're joined by Chris Hawley from Black Box Theatre Company. How are you, Chris? All right, considering
2: all things considered,
1: after a bottle
2: of San Miguel, you can ask me anything and I'll tell you. Brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) I've just been at the RSC acting. Now I'm working with Terry Pratchett adapting (laughs) one of his Discworld novels. Life will throw up all sorts of opportunities. I suggest you take them.
1: All right, love. What will it be? Hello, everyone. This is an episode again. um... (laughs) Funny that. (laughs) This has gone off the veils already. We've got a guest. Hello. There we go. Let's go (laughs) straight into it. We've got a guest. This week, we are joined by the award-winning director producer writer and founder of Black Box Theatre Company one of the greatest theatre companies in the world uh, is that everything Chris? have I, have I covered all bases? Yeah, I think so just about <laughs> people are going to think you asked me to say all that and he did <laughs> Money's to the post. <laughs> yes, we're joined by Chris Hawley from Black Box Theatre Company. How are you, Chris? All right, considering, all things considered, <laughs> not too bad. <laughs>
0: Hanging on in there.
2: Ooh. Oh, hadn't it been a long old slog? It really has been a long old time. Do you think, David, it was knocking on a year ago, we were doing our R&D for Up Hitler.
1: Yes, yeah, the show that I've written and you were... Well, you're still slated to direct and it was all whenever that show eventually comes back on on stage. I don't have I mentioned aop Hitler in the podcast? I think I have. It's a show I've written. Hitler and his cronies go to the north of England, they escape World War Two, it's the true story. It just seems really weird to go out of context. Oh yeah, my play aop Hitler. And people would be like, What? Coming coming to a stage near you. At some point. (laughs) I think that's to be the tagline on the poster. (laughs) Important question to start off, Chris. What are you drinking? You're literally Um, drinking the second that I asked that question.
2: Yeah, I was. Um, I'm drinking, I am drinking San Miguel. And how long have you been drinking that before you started recording? No, although I said I was going to start drinking at lunchtime, I I, I had a bit of a a sesh last night. I was sat in on a play reading and I thought, I'll have a cheeky glass of red wine, which of course then turned into... Two cheeky glasses, which turned into a bottle, and at two o'clock this morning, I was comatose on the sofa, and woke up this morning, clambered up to bed, and then woke up this morning feeling really ropey. I just haven't been drinking during lockdown. I know most people have, but I've been very good. I've been sort of, I've lost a stone and a half. Well done. I'm exercising like crazy.
0: Skinny legend.
2: But yeah, I haven't been drinking, so I expect after after a bottle of San Miguel, you can ask me anything, and I'll tell you. <laughs> brilliant stay tuned everyone
1: <laughs> i was talking to hannah about because in the first lockdown we drank quite a bit and i was like we should I'm, I'm thinking of cutting back on my alcohol intake so how about we only drink on days when it's been really stressful or on days when i'm recording a podcast <laughs> so we've not cut down at all <laughs> well that's it,
2: not it it's like oh it's been a boring old day I thought, I'll treat myself for a drink, or it's it's the weekend, so mm. I'll have a drink, or, oh, it's been a stress. Yeah, I mean, you just realise, actually, not doing your Normal sort of day to day, you just revert to sort of eating and drinking. So, we've mm-hmm. got to look
0: forward to. I'm sure that's all yeah. I talk about with my family. Literally, if I yeah. as soon as I get up in the morning, as soon as I roll out of my pit, <laughs> I get yeah. Liam turns around to me with his massive curly head of hair.
2: Well, and goes, I wonder where you were going there,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and he goes to me. Do you know what your mum's rustling up tonight? I'm like, it's fucking half past nine in the morning. I'm only having a wee and then I'm going back to sleep. <laughs> I do not want to know what's for dinner. But yes. Yeah,
1: rustling so, up tonight. Does he actually say those exact words? Yeah. How quaint.
0: Yeah. In fact, he says, Do you know what the Janeykins is rustling up tonight? Uh, he has got I'm his sure. feet well and truly
2: under that table, isn't he? Oh yeah. I have to say, you two, by the way, before we start, this is like talking to my two children. Before we... We've thought... already started. This is part of the episode. Yeah, well, I, yeah, OK, I know. But before we really get going, or is this, oh, no, is this as good as it's going to get? No, but just, <laughs> it's just like, you're my two children, my two theatre
1: children.
0: <laughs> Honorary birthed by you.
1: Well, you're the man responsible... Not only kind of kickstarting our professional careers, but for uniting myself and Scarlett, because you were, you hired me for my second ever professional job for bouncers and then Scarlett's first, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah, but don't blame me for this travesty of a podcast. (laughs)
0: Fuck
1: off, you listen to it every Thursday. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Only to help put me to
1: sleep. <laughs> what is it? Every other guest we've had on has been really respectful. You come on and yeah, you've insulted us five awesome times Did you it. expect
0: any different?
2: <laughs> well, yeah, that's but true. But David, do you remember the first time you met Scarlett? Wasn't she quiet and lovely? I know. Who'd have thought? Eh? <laughs> Who'd have <thunk> it? <laughs> mm, uh,
0: I do have a sort of semi-ladylike reserved alter ego. She just doesn't get to see the light of day li- very regularly. Ever.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: she's locked well and truly yeah.
0: away. I bet you thought I was quite quiet when I auditioned for you as well. Like, oh, She's nice.
2: But it was a very odd audition, wasn't it? Because we met at Ashcroft Arts Centre. Because I'd seen you in your end of year thing at Winchester. Mm-hmm.
1: What was that called again, Scarlett? I think we need context <laughs> of the show you were in at uni that Chris saw you <laughs> in. And the various costumes that you had there's
2: only one costume
0: yeah it was only headgear (laughs) (laughs) um it was called evolver things you could have taxed and it was about period poverty and the myths surrounding menstruation
2: and what did you play
0: (laughs) a tampon witch
2: (laughs) and what was on your head
0: A great big fucking tampon.
2: (laughs) And I thought, that's the girl for my next show.
0: (laughs) (laughs) She's a star.
2: (laughs) She's a star. I'm going to make her a star. But (laughs) but then we met a a month later or something at the Ashcroft. Yeah, and you were quite quiet. Well, you were reasonably quiet. Mm. And then I sort of said, I suppose we just had a chat, didn't we, for about an hour or something. And then I said, well, I suppose I ought to get you to read something. And um, I said, said, "Uh, can you do a Scottish accent? So you did your Scottish accent. Mm -hmm. And then can you do posh? you did your posh, (laughs) your posh accent. And I I think I offered you the job on the spot, didn't I? You
0: did, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I was like whooping on the way home, like smacking my (laughs) steering wheel. Ah, yeah. Mom and dad are going (laughs) to love me.
1: So to all aspiring actors out there, that's how you get into the business. Stick a tampon on your head, hope a director's watching you and they'll offer you a job on the spot. And have a good Scottish accent. (laughs) So like when you saw uh, those final year shows at Winchester Uni, Chris, were you invited by any students
2: or was it by lecturers? No, I was invited by by the department. We'd rehearsed there and we'd played there a couple of times already. And uh, so I knew the You know, I knew Helen. I knew David, who runs the technical side of things there. And uh, yeah, they invited me along to come and see the end of year shows. I took you from because it was basically it was all girls, wasn't it? And then
0: yeah, all boys. All the boys <laughs>
2: did a did a, um, a show, and uh, we took Michael Griss, who was um, in the boys' show. We took him for um, A R Hitler. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was, actually, it was. Uh, and do you know what? Go actually going along and seeing um, those sort of end of year shows. It's great because you are, you know, especially if you are looking for new talent, um, you're seeing people, and okay, it was a bit raw, it was a bit sort of because they were devised shows, weren't they? Yeah, as well? They were. You can pick out those people who you think, yeah, they've got something about them, even if you can say, yeah, it's a bit raw and the show's perhaps a bit sort of creaky around the edges. But you can tell whether somebody's got, you know, got the acting chops about them.
1: If we do have any like students listening at all, how would they be able to like, would they be able to get in touch with you and invite you along? Would you be happy to go see more shows?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Always. I mean, I think that's, I mean, it's really important. I think certainly when I was acting, it was really, it was always really difficult to get agents to come along or, you know, producers, directors to come along and see you. But I was up in London. Mm. So every other person, you know, that you bumped into had something to do with the theatre, it seemed. But certainly down here on the South Coast, there are plenty of people around. There's plenty of small companies and and some larger producing companies that should be out there scouting for local talent. You know, I think it's wrong, especially if you've got regional theatres or small regional companies like mine, to then start going to London to source your actors it doesn't make any sense at all to me we were talking earlier about um, mast you know the, the mayflower studio that's going to be opening hopefully later this year hopefully they'll they'll help connect all those people because whereas london is very easy to sort of make those connections you know there's lots of theaters there's lots of fringe venues there's lots of art centers there's lots of people there i think you know i'm i when i'm looking for actors I'm looking sort of the whole of Hampshire. So I'm looking at a whole county. And sometimes it is a bit difficult to kind of connect different venues or the different people and and try and create that network. And I think for you guys, especially as you know, young actors, that's a nightmare. And I know neither of you particularly want to go up to London, do you? Well, if the right job comes along, well, maybe.
1: <laughs> never say never, Chris.
0: You can sort <laughs> of be based as well, can't you, Dave? Have you not got, you've got some sort of possible residence here, haven't you?
1: I know people that live in London that I could stay with if I ever get a job in London. They don't know this.
0: But... <laughs> David says he's based all over the fucking country when he applies for stuff.
1: Of course he does. <laughs> I know people that live in London. I'm sure they'd say yes.
2: <laughs> but, I haven't asked him yet. It's like on your CV, you know, or if somebody <laughs> says to you, "Can you ride a horse?" You kind of go, "Oh yes." You know, it's, Do you it's... Know? <laughs> oh yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I've obviously missed a trick, then.
2: Oh Christ! You lie like there's no tomorrow. If it gets you the job, if it gets, if it gets you into, if it gets you, you know, do you do puppetry? Yes. If it gets you into the room to be seen. That's the most important thing, and I know some. Actually, I know some quite big named actors who, in the past, have lied about films they've been in or TV programs they've been on to get
1: themselves into a room.
0: There well, we go. That's the way to do it, then.
1: Right. Once we get to the end of that San Miguel bottle, we're going to find out who they are. <laughs> I'm just about to open the second one, so here we go. Brilliant.
0: <laughs> He's ahead of the game. But,
2: but it's but it's no because all those things can be learned. You know, unless the job starts tomorrow and you've got to be able to play, like, you know.
0: Grade eight saxophone.
1: <laughs> um,
2: you can learn it. You know, you can learn the basics. And especially for film or, or for television. Um, you know, again, I, I know some actors, uh, one in particular, she was, had to play the saxophone. Well, she couldn't play the saxophone at all. She, she learned a way that it looked like she could play the saxophone.
0: I was going to say because who just has a saxophone laying around to give it well, a exactly. blow on the night before?
2: Exactly, <laughs> and um, you know, so there's all there's ways and there's ways. If you have to ride a horse in a in a show, there's very few actors that are accomplished horse people. Horse people. Uh, horse, I was going to say horsemen, but then that sort of no, centaurs. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but one, they're not going to give you a horse that's too difficult. They're going to give you you know a ploddy old horse that just does what it's told. <laughs> Or they all you—they'll give you lessons. I had to learn how to drive a train for a job.
0: So you didn't say, "Yeah, I do know how to drive a train" before you went into it.
2: I kind of guess they—they—they they, they assumed I didn't know. <laughs> it wasn't actually that difficult. Push a lever, pull a lever. It wasn't. But Scarlett, it was—it was a little bit like you know when um, I said to you, "Can you do a Scottish accent?" Um, fortunately, you could.
0: You wholeheartedly um, thought I was lying.
2: <laughs> and but if you hadn't been able to we would have figured a way of either faking it or doing something different.
0: Would you not have just found somebody else that could do it?
2: No, you were the only person I met. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a bit Hobson's choice, love. No. no. But you know what I mean, it's it it's, it wasn't that essential mm. that you had a, a spot on Scottish accent. I mean David's Scottish accent's sort of <laughs> traveled around most of north
1: of england how fucking dare you (laughs) that's because for 39 steps i had about 20 different characters that were scottish and i was saying to you for one of them does this one have to be scottish i'm can't i've got no more scottish voices left in my repertoire and you're like yes i was like i've done angry scott i've done drunken scott i've done high-pitched scott did you do a, a female, Scott? The train guard in 39 Steps was a little bit feminine. He was like, oh, no. He <laughs> was. You, did a, you even did a Scottish dog, I, which I thought was... I similar. did, yes. No end to my talents.
0: <laughs> Another drink for you, love.
1: This podcast is sponsored by WeAudition.com.
0: WeAudition is the revolutionary new website that helps actors to find a scene partner on demand through video chat for rehearsals and self-tapes and meet casting directors, agents and industry experts for auditions and general meetings one-on-one through video chat and earn money for rehearsing with other actors.
1: But why are we telling you this, you may ponder? Well, ponder no more, because we've teamed up with the wonderful people of weaudition.com to offer listeners of Two Actors Walk Into a Bar an exclusive discount on pro-membership. I don't know why I went Scottish then, but what I do know is that if you use our code 2ACTORS25 at checkout, you'll get an exclusive 25% off your pro membership. That's the promo code 2ACTORS25. T-W-O-A-C-T-O-R-S 25 from my point of view
2: as as a director, is to allow the actors just to play, Mm. you know, try things out, be mad, be extraordinary, be weird and wonderful. You know, it's my job to sort of reel it back if it needs it. But nine times out of 10, it doesn't need reeling back that much. You work with actors who you hope have a natural instinct for things. I'm sure you've worked with people, I've certainly worked with people um, in the past as an actor, who literally treat you like you're you are that puppet, yes, <laughs> stand here, do this, say say it this way, get off, and, and you think, what's the point, mm. really, what is the point? Why am I here? Whereas the best directors that I ever worked for kind of went, right, here we are, let's see what we come up with, and allows you to sort of make those bold decisions, sometimes they're massive, great mistakes. that doesn't matter because it's you know that old adage that you learn from your mistakes. Um, And sometimes out of those mistakes or out of something weird and wonderful, you kind of go, oh, hadn't thought of that. Let's go down that route. And I think I don't know how you felt with 39 Steps.
0: Yeah, it's credit to the writing because we come up with something because it's available when you're writing it. I assume you're envisaging something and then we get a taste of that and run with it. And obviously, like you say, it's in your Hands to reel it back if it's too much.
2: <laughs> it was a nice atmosphere to be in. You guys all got, you know, the three of you all got on really, really well. Mm-hmm. So felt safe that you could try something mad and stupid and, and, you know, you weren't going to get fingers pointed at you or people sort of talking behind your back. I mean, I've been in companies and you kind of, you try something, and you can just feel the atmosphere in the room change and you're thinking, oh dear, oh dear, if I, you know, have I overstepped the mark? and you can feel people judging you mm. and that's a horrible that's that's not that doesn't give you any sense of creative atmosphere to work in and so you you end up just sort of really reading the script and that's horrible and that's not what theatre's about at all yeah. i mean you're saying about you know me writing it i mean obviously i i adapted it from the original novel and that's... Having a, a, um, an acting background, I suppose I did hear those voices in my head and how would I say that and how would I do that? And, but I wanted to see what you brought to it, rather than me sort of saying, no, 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 no. Yeah. Actually, mm. I wanted it done like this. And I hope you, you know you guys had fun, because I think that's, the again, an important aspect of a rehearsal room, is that it's
1: fun. I've always found with shows that I've done with you... They have just been fun. And I've had to pinch myself going, I'm getting fucking paid for this. Jesus Christ. But then on the flip side of that, I've worked with actors who seem a bit more embarrassed to want to just let loose and go crazy and stuff like that. Because you mentioned about directors that are very, no, do this, stand like that. You have to, you know, move a certain way, say the thing a certain way.
0: You said before, Dave, that you like direction.
1: I do. I do like direction, but... If it's so rigid it's got it's got to be exactly like this. There's
2: a difference between direction and being dictatorial. Yes. I think direction is you help your actors by sort of suggesting ideas or suggesting images they might think about or, or whatever it might be. Or sort of saying, I like that. Can we go that way? Or if that's not really working. Let's perhaps try another way. Mm. But the worst thing I think a director can do is sort of say, you have to do it like this, because I think for an actor, they want to feel that they own a character or in David's case, 24 characters and a dog. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, you know, and it's important that you are part of that creative process. So a director might have an overarching view of what the play is going to be like, you know, the tone of it, the atmosphere and all, and what the sort of, that arc of that story might be. But within that, I think it's really important that the actors bring what they, they've got, mm. you know, their imagination, their, their craft, their skill, or whatever it is that they can bring... And it's for a director then to sort of say, cherry pick all the good bits and then steer it in the right direction. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, definitely. I love it. I think perhaps because I was an actor, I love feeding off what actors bring to, to the rehearsal room.
1: Well, that's something that I think would be quite interesting because obviously you've just mentioned and you've mentioned a few times that you used to be an actor. And obviously a lot of our listeners are actors and uh thinking of ways to further their career in acting and find work and stuff but you're one of the few people I know that was an actor for several years and then you just stopped doing it which is yeah. something as I guess cuz someone who's quite new to the, the the business of show as it were I find it baffling to th- I can't imagine not acting no I know if if you would be willing to cast your mind back <laughs> Only a few years, I'm sure. To when you first started acting, what was it like? What drove you to want to be an actor? And at the same time, what drove you to want to stop doing it? I came at it from a slightly different
2: way than you two did. I actually trained as an architect. To be quite honest, I'd have made a bloody awful architect. (laughs) Um, So I I did my degree and left and kind of bummed around for about six months. And I was living up in London. And I knew people, I knew people... Especially, I knew their parents who worked in the industry. Which, of course, when I was at school, you know, back in the you know black and white days, <laughs> um, <laughs> nobody became an actor. No, you know, it was it was something that other people did. Mm. I didn't really do very much at school either. I was it wasn't like I was a, a natural performer. But certainly, when I was up in uh, London, I'd met a lot of people. I say I was bumming around for a while, and then a friend of mine got me into working backstage at Starlight Express. And so then I was around theatre people and I loved it. I just loved being in a theatre and around theatre people. And I still really didn't know which part of the industry I wanted to be in. I ended up... Applying for a job or several jobs at the BBC, and I ended up working at the BBC in the, as a dresser, which was the best job because it allowed me to sort of work on loads and loads of different shows, meet loads and loads of people. So sometimes it was uh, we were doing outside broadcasts, sometimes we were doing studio work. But all the time I was watching the performers and I was thinking, actually, that's what I want to do. Mm. So after nine months, they were going to give me a, a permanent contract and I left. Uh, and on my very last day at the BBC, uh, one of my friends sort of said, what are you going to do? I went, I'm going to go and be an actor. And they went, have you got your equity card at a time when you had to have your equity card? Mm. And I went, no. And they went, well, my girlfriend runs a theater, a children's theater company or a TIE company, and they need a technical stage manager to drive the van and, and, and run the show. Um, would you be interested? And I kind of went, Yes, and it's had a card going with it. So that's kind of how I got my equity card. And then, you know, by hook by crook, I sort of ended up stumbling my way into sort of acting after that. I was stage managing a small show in a sort of off West End venue Mm. that my girlfriend was in. So the main guy in it got a job playing Felix Leiter in one of the Bond films. As you do. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> As it happens to most actors, I'm sure. <laughs> so he had to leave the production. So everybody got sort of bumped up <laughs> a, a, a character. And they said to me, will you play the bellboy? Which was like the smallest part possible. I kind of went, yeah, all right. <laughs> so you literally just sort of stumbled into acting more than it being a, a big sort of career choice. So I applied to various colleges and and drama schools to do a one-year postgrad and ended up at arts educational which I have to say was complete and utter waste of time doing a one-year postgrad course is not worth doing costs a huge amount of money you're only there for about nine months and it's honestly you'd be better just to sort of spend your money on classes and actually getting out working but that's by the by and yeah so I was then sort of acting for about 20 years. And I had some good years and I had some bloody awful years. <laughs> I can't remember what the, what the question was now. Um, <laughs> me neither, to be honest. It was Well,
0: <laughs> how you got into it and how did you decide
2: to stop? So after about 20 years, I was getting worn down by it, actually.
1: Was it a case of more bad years than good years? No, not really. Um, it was just a hard slog. I always said to
2: myself... If I ever get bitter about being in the business, that's the time to get out. It's not a good business if you're bitter about it. You've got to be passionate. You've got to, you know, want to be doing it. And I was beginning to get a little bit bitter about the business. And then I did um, an eight-month tour of Roald Dahl's The Witches, which started off at Birmingham Rep. And then we went out on tour for um, eight months, five weeks of which was in the West End. And it was one of the dullest acting jobs I think I've ever done because again we weren't allowed as actors to really show what we could do as actors you know we weren't allowed to it was very much you come on here you do this you say that you get off it was it was really really dull and then slogging around the country for eight months i was, I'd had it basically I mean I was 40 I think yeah 40 42 and then immediately after after that i got a big ad campaign and we filmed some test ads they loved it it was a, it was a family sat round a, a kitchen table anyway they brought in all the big guns and flew guys in from america it was a two day shoot and i was talking to somebody on on the second day of filming they said if this goes well you're going to be like the new oxo family and i and i knew and i, I knew i used to know the girl who was in the original Oxo ads and I thought oh, right, <laughs> I'm paying off my mortgage yeah. this is going to be fantastic at last I'm actually going to make some proper serious money about a month later I phoned my agent and sort of said do you know when this is coming on the telly so she phoned up the uh, the ad agency got back to me about half an hour later and sort of said they put it to a test audience they hated it they're never going to show it oh. so I got paid for 2 days studio time which was about 600 quid when I was thinking I was going to be paying off mortgages. And I thought, do you know what? That's it. I've had it. I left acting alone and I went and uh, I stopped being part of the theatre completely for about five years. Uh, I was being employed to look after this big country house down in New Forest. And one of the neighbours sort of said to me, and I explained what I had done in the past, and they said, have you ever thought about doing amateur theatre? And I went, fuck off. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Do you know who I am? (laughs) No offence to any Amdram groups who are listening.
0: I was almost the next Oxo family, don't you know?
1: (laughs) Don't don't
2: you know? And um, anyway, they told me about this company in in Salisbury that had built their own theatre. And I don't know why particularly, but I thought... I'll go along and meet them. So I went along and meet them. They were lovely. And they'd built this beautiful little studio theatre in Salisbury. And anyway, they asked me to audition. So I auditioned for Hamlet. And I got the part of Claudius. And I thought, if this is really awful, I'll bail out after a week or two. <laughs> but do you know what? they? Were, I mean, they really took it seriously. They were more professional than some of the professional companies I've been with. The show was stunning. It was brilliant. And they put it into all sorts of competitions and festivals and whatever which we kept winning and um, part of our well we won the all england theater festival part of our prize was to go and play at the rsc so my very last time on stage was at the rsc playing claudius in hamlet (laughs) i thought this is fantastic but i never have to do it again (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that was, and that, for me, was enough, actually. You know, from the acting point of view, that was absolutely enough.
1: That's kind of a good way to end it, really. It is. After the same again, lovey. Saxons at Sutton Hoo. Green children in Woolpit. Smugglers at Sizewell. And Ed Sheeran by the Castle on the Hill. Suffolk is full of fascinating stuff. And I'm here to deep dive into it all. Join me, Emily Slade, and my guests every Friday as I look into the different areas of the county by the sea. From film to folklore, history to Haverhill, there's definitely suffin' about Suffolk.
2: I helped produce a play, uh, a Terry Pratchett play, and Terry Pratchett at the time was still alive, and he was a Salisbury resident or lived just outside of Salisbury. So he came to see it.
1: Wow. No pressure.
2: Well, yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> and he was quite a long way into his Alzheimer's, so he wasn't a well man. I had a chat to him sort of afterwards, and he loved the production. And I can't remember whether he sort of said, would you like to do another one or you will do another one. Um, <laughs> but uh, I sort of said, I'd love to do one, but... I want to do the adaptation. And he sort of said, yeah. And I thought, hang on a minute. I've just been at the RSC acting. Now I'm working with Terry Pratchett adapting (laughs) one of his Discworld novels. And, you know, it was extraordinary, really. So again, I did a play called um, Making Money. Which again, he came to see and absolutely loved. And I think it was the last time he actually got a chance to see one of his plays performed before wow. he died. So that was a, again, that was a great honour and a great thrill to do. And it really, I suppose, working with amateur companies, having sort of just sort of sounded like I was going to dis amateur theatre. I think amateur theatre is an extraordinary thing. Not long after that, I did a thing with again with the RSC called the RSC Open Stages which was bringing together lots of amateur groups from all over the UK. Um, And we spent a week up at Stratford doing workshops and then we all went back and sort of took what we'd learnt and they gave us a mentor as well. I directed Macbeth for this amateur company. In the meantime, the job that I had down in New Forest all went a bit tits up, so I'd moved back home. Another amateur company asked if I'd uh, direct something for them at the Nuffield Theatre. So I directed uh, Midsummer Night's Dream for them there. And I think it was while I was there, I thought, do you know what? I'm really enjoying directing. Perhaps I ought to set up my own theatre company. I can remember I was down in the pub with some friends of mine, obviously banging on about this again. And one of my friends just turned around and sort of said, will you just stop talking about it and
1: fucking do it? (laughs) And and I kind of went, oh, okay then. Had you actually directed anything before... The shows and songs, or was that donkeys? Yeah, but I always I, looking back. It's interesting looking
2: back at my acting career, sitting in rehearsal rooms, watching directors and actors work. When you when you know when you're not on stage, I can't tell you the number of times I'm looking and kind of going, "Yeah, I wouldn't have done it like that. Oh I wouldn't have given that direction." So it's it's odd actually looking back. I think I always had that sort of director's eye. But I think I wanted to be an actor. And it's wasn't until, say, four or five years ago when I set up Black Box that I kind of went, do you know what? Directing is what I'm good at. I'm not a natural actor. I can get by and I'm all right, but I'm not a natural actor. But I think I've got a good eye for directing. Still don't know what I'm doing most of the time, but, you know.
0: <laughs> it's funny, though, and you think, could you, was that what you were always drawn to? You just hadn't realised it yet. Yeah. So maybe it was always meant to be directing. And
2: perhaps, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm very fatalistic about things. Perhaps I came at it at a time when it was right for me to do. Mm. Perhaps yeah. if I would sort of tried to do it when I was 30, it might not have worked. Mm. I think as well, you know, having 25, 30 years of experience in the theatre, I know what works. I know what, you know, I know how to talk to actors. I know how theatre works. I you know, I know sort of, technically how it works. I'm not really that interested in doing real avant-garde, off the wall theatre. Most of the stuff I do is fairly mainstream.
1: So, one thing I'm interested in, how do you go from having a friend shout at you in a pub saying, "Oh, shut up and just make a theatre company," yeah. to actually making a theatre company? From was it from nothing? Was it just having to build everything from the ground up?
2: Yeah, it was it was, it was completely from nothing. And Again, I know how theater works, and I knew but literally I sort of sat down for a couple of days, so I knew that I knew we were going to do bouncers and i I'd, I'd got the um the performance rights for bouncers, so I literally sat down for two or three days and wrote to i don't know 100, hundred hundred and fifty uh small venues in and around hampshire but the my biggest fear or my biggest problem was we had no money, mm. and uh the best way of getting money to fund a show is through the arts council and the arts council um, project grants and I, I mentioned it to a couple of people that I was going to apply for a grant They went oh, yeah we tried that. now no no it's not going to happen Anyway, I applied to the Arts Council and fortunately, yeah, got the project grant, which, of course, then allowed us to fund the, fund the show. In the meantime, the 100 or 150 venues that I wrote to, I think we had about 25 positive replies. Yeah. Um, so there was the tour, you know, and it was village halls and art centres and um, churches and museums and... A hovercraft. And the hovercraft, of course, yeah. <laughs> Um yeah, we, we that I think that was the strangest one. <laughs> was playing on the old cross channel hovercraft down at the hovercraft museum in Leon Solon.
0: You definitely sold that to me in the semi audition, not audition. And I just <laughs> didn't know how cold it was gonna be. You didn't warn me of that.
2: <laughs> yeah, well yeah, it's a bit chilly. But do you know what? it's one of, and again, it's exactly what my friend said is just get on with it. You know, don't talk about it, do it. Mm. And once you've said to yourself, Right, I am gonna do this You can always talk yourself out of something. It's going to cost too much money. I haven't got a venue. I've got no this. I've got no that. I haven't got a place. Whatever. You can talk yourself out of it. But once you've actually said to yourself, right, we're going to do this. And it's a lot of work. It's a lot of emailing and phoning up people and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, if you want to do it, you do it. It's a little bit like, again, going back to A.R.P. Hitler, I said to you very early, Dawes, you know, you've got to write this play. Two years down the line, I think Hannah, your girlfriend, sort of said, Dave, are you going to write this play?
1: <laughs> it was because she bumped into you in a party and you said you'd yeah. been telling people that you knew someone who'd written this play. And I was like, I haven't written a fucking word yet, so I better yeah. start.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly
1: that. <sighs> but it's the thing, you need motivation. And I think having people that can motivate you, and I think that guy in the pub who would said to you, just bloody do yeah. it, I'm yeah, sure yeah, yeah. you're thanking him yeah. to the rafters, really, because you've had several successful shows with this company now. Absolutely, and it's
2: not just you know setting up a company or what, it's anything in life. You know, it's it's very easy to kind of go. I'd really love to do. As a, a, an old girlfriend of mine sort of said, said um, "I'd really like to set up a, a proper old-fashioned tea room." I said, well, why don't you? She went, ah, yeah, well, because, blah, blah, blah. And she came up with so many excuses. And I went, and I said to her, for fuck's sake, stop talking about it. Just do it. <laughs> um, and she hasn't. And the danger is, in 10, 20 years' time, she'll be going, do you know what? I should have done that. Mm. It might not work. It might not happen. It might, but Christ's sake, you know, anything in life, if you've got an idea, do it. I was, I was very fortunate. When I was a kid, so when I was about 16 or 17 doing my A-levels, which I have to say I was dreadful at because I had to do maths further maths and physics, which, you know, for me, I'm an artiste dancer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why did you pick those subjects? Was that what you were best at? I uh,
2: – no. I don't think I chose them. <laughs> I think they were chosen for me. But anyway wow. – That's
0: what they did in the 70s. <laughs> but my maths teacher
2: actually took me aside uh, one day and sort of said, I've got one piece of advice – Life will throw up all sorts of opportunities. I suggest you take them. And at 17, I kind of went, all right, sir. But it's absolutely true, you know, and and life does throw up all sorts of weird and wonderful opportunities. And it's very easy to say no. And sometimes mm. it's quite hard to just kind of go, yeah, okay, we'll do this. But do you know what? It makes for a much
1: more interesting life. I think people definitely need to hear that, especially around this time of all of COVID mm. and lockdown is... Especially for us in the arts, has kind of fucked us over a bit, and it's a lot easier to say oh, no. Kind now. of, kind of. Yeah. It has. Yeah. You can make up excuses to not do something, but just, just bloody do it. Essentially,
0: we're all guilty yeah. of it
1: as well. Oh god, yeah. Oh, the, we all procrastinate. There's
2: so many reasons not to do something, but sometimes that one reason, however ludicrous it is, mm. because you know, if it go, if it comes off, jobs are good, and you know, you're going to be, I mean. I've got my own theatre company. Okay, it's never going to make me a millionaire, but Christ, you know, it makes me deliriously happy being in that rehearsal room, putting stuff on, taking and we what and let's not beat about Bush. We're a very small theatre company. We take it to village halls, local art centres and and the like. You know, I'm not interested in taking it to big theatres. I'm not interested in sort of trying to get a show on in the West End. Somebody else can do that and they'll do it a hell of a lot better. But when somebody you know, in a little village hall Mm. comes up afterwards and kind of goes, do you know what? That's the best thing I've ever seen. You kind of go, wow. That's extraordinary. Mm. And it really, you know, Mm. it's kind of what people should be in the business for. To pretend that you're in the business to become a millionaire and a big Hollywood star and whatever, good on you if that happens for you. But you know, I don't know how many equity members there are at the moment, say 80,000 equity members, and there's probably about 200 of those are actually making any money out of it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's um I wonder how five. many are in the
0: top bracket of their oh, payment. <laughs> tiny. I think...
2: Certainly back in the day when I was acting, there there was a statistic going around. There was 80,000 equity members of which 80% earned less than £5,000 a year. Wow. And I don't suppose that has actually changed very much. Doubtful. So if you're going to go into this business, you've got to go into it certainly with passion and drive and all those sorts of things, but do it because you need and want to do it, not because it's going to make you a lot of money, Mm -hmm. because most actors – I would say the majority of actors, if they were honest with themselves, do it as a part-time job. They have another job that pays the bills and pays the mortgage or whatever. Very few actors can say that is their full-time job, which is a a terrible situation. But it's the truth of things, isn't it? And hopefully you know one of us not me because that's not what i'm aiming for but you know one of you two or both of you will get that lucky break and you know have that fabulous career
0: but you have to be realistic as well as optimistic it's a it's a hard balance
2: it's it's both Mm. i think you know you do it because you need and want to i think you real proper actors they do it because they need to do it regardless of anything else they need to do it there's a lot of i see a lot of stuff online at the moment on facebook and whatever and it's like um oh you know i thought about getting into acting what do you think of these headshots and they're like (laughs) holiday snaps you think fuck off (laughs) honestly fuck right off
1: there's so many people out there
2: think that acting is an easy option (laughs) And it really genuinely isn't. No. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get jobs in the first place. And then when you've got the job, you've got to work really, really hard mm-hmm. while, you know, doing that job. And it can be fun. I mean, you know, we have fun when we're doing shows. Yeah. But it's still hard we work. Do. And so, you know, by I always say, if you get to the end of a rehearsal day, you should be knackered. You should be absolutely wrung out because yeah. it is hard work, physically, mentally, you know, challenging. And the same with the performance. You know, you should be absolutely wrung out by the end of the performance. And I think a lot of people kind of think, yeah, it's just going on and mucking about and saying a few <laughs> lines. It's easy. And there are some actors who've made a very good career out of that. But mm-hmm. the reality of it is, you know, you've got to work hard at it and need to do it.
1: Mm. Another realm for
2: your
0: love. I find it, I don't know if you know what I mean, Dave, but marginally insulting when nine times out, well, maybe that's a bit of a harsh average, but I'm going to say nine times out of 10, you get castings through that are to be a fucking YouTube influencer. When right. you see
1: jobs on Mandy that are like looking for real people. I was like, well, what the fuck yeah. are you doing on this casting website yeah. for fucking actors? Fuck off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Go on yeah, the street. Yeah, there's yeah. real people out there. Yeah. You won't be able to approach them within two metres. Yeah, that can begin
0: to great
2: I mean, you know, when everybody's starting out, you, you're starting out, you're new, you don't know, you know, which way's up. And mm-hmm. you don't have very much money behind you. And I know that things like headshots or show reels can cost you know quite a lot of money. But you've got to accept the fact that that is part of the business. You've got to present yourself as professionally as you can because somebody else will. They'll have spent mm-hmm. the money. They'll have spent the time, and you know, look like the absolute bollocks. Yeah. It, it's interesting because I've worked a lot with amateurs, and you know. You get a lot of very, very talented amateurs, t- talented amateur actors, and they're great. There is definitely a difference between good amateurs and professional actors. The way they work, the way they approach their work, how they create a character and all those sorts of things. It's very, very different. And that's a, certainly as a director. That's what I'm looking for is somebody who's going to put the work in. It sounds you know, a bit wanky, but knows their craft. And it's not necessarily something that you can be taught, oddly enough. Mm. You can be taught, you know, how to use your voice and all that sort of stuff. I was watching um, a thing with Julie Walters. Mm. It was a sort of, it was kind of an interview thing with her. And um, who was the guy I'm with, Nell and I? Richard E. Grant. Richard E. Grant. So they're both sat on the stage. And he said to her, do you think you can teach acting? She said, no. And I absolutely believe that. Mm. I think you can either act or you can't going to drama school which i think can be important then we'll finesse all that and give you the tools that you need i don't think you can actually teach somebody to be an actor mm. does that make sense
1: yeah mm. you've
2: either got it or you haven't and you too, fortunately <laughs> if you put the work in
0: <laughs> you might just <laughs> if you're
2: lucky, if you're lucky uh. i've run out of beer
1: Last orders at the bar. Last orders at the bar. Hello, everyone. Future Dave here. Now, at this point in the recording, myself and Scarlett, we'd been chatting with Chris for just over an hour or so, and we assumed when we came back from our little break that we would start wrapping things up. But then Chris returned... And cracked open a bottle of red wine. And I mean, what kind of self-respecting theatre children would we be if we just let our wonderful theatre dad drink that bottle of wine all by himself? I mean, he did drink that bottle of wine all by himself because, you know, we're in lockdown and recording these podcasts over Zoom. But that's not important. So we ended up chatting for a lot longer and drinking a lot more. And we ended up recording enough material for a whole other episode. But if you think I'm going to leave you without giving a little taste, a little flavour of what's to come next week, oh, you are so wrong, my friend. So here's a little sneak peek at what's to come next week.
2: And the guy that was um, running the workshop said, I want you to write down five things that encapsulate what you want your theatre to be. So one of the things I wrote was entertaining. And everybody went,
0: oh, you sure? Were
2: you ever starstruck much? All the time. I met uh, Anthony Hopkins. Did
0: you get all like all hot, sweaty? Oh, good Christ, it's Anthony Hopkins! <laughs>
2: but she dis- shot me this look as if to sort of say, "You are a piece of shit."
1: And I thought, oh, my God. All right, How many other actors have you offended? Oh, lots, I'm sure. <laughs> Meryl Streep's another one.
2: I can see her acting. I can see the
1: fucking cogs. <laughs> Sorry, Meryl, but you're not going to be in a black box show now. No. You and Rafe. She, she can- are out. They can both. They can both beg. <laughs> I'm sorry, but no. (laughs) I can love it. All that and much, much more in another fantastic instalment and heavily alcohol-fuelled episode of Two Actors Walk Into a Bar. See you next week. Well, more hear you next week, as this is an audio medium. Actually, we won't be hearing you at all. You'll be the ones hearing us, so we'll neither see nor hear you. We'll just have to assume that you're listening. And I... Don't know why I'm still talking. Shut up, Dave.
0: What are you still doing here? Sling your hook. See you later, Davey boy. See you
1: later, Scarlotta.
0: We'd like to give a massive thanks to Rotaries for our soundtrack and to Megan Siggers for our artwork. And an even bigger thanks to all of you choosing to listen to us
1: waffle on. Find us on all social media platforms and make sure to subscribe to us because we're actors. We need validation.